As you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, let me make a few comments about the last three or four weeks and the subject that we've been dealing with. I have a personal desire to know that all of you are saved, to be saved evidently, that is, with evidence that there is obviously when you look at your life and people follow your life, if they're around you, to know that you're saved. We call saved, as we said the last few weeks, being converted, or the Bible calls it being regenerated. And it all has to do with being infused with a life outside of ourselves, a life that comes from God, that God makes a choice. We did not choose him. He chose us. And when he chose us to be his people, he chose us while we were sinners. We were unworthy. Everything was wrong. There was none of us that were right in any degree, not a one of us. And yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were sinners, God chose us. And he brought us to himself like this. He gave godly sorrow. He caused us to be aware of our sins. He showed us the criminality of our life. We saw all the shameful things. They suddenly became shameful. They never were when we were doing it. But one day they became shameful. We were aware that nothing has ever been hidden from God. He's heard every conversation. He's seen every act. He knows every thought. We have gotten by with nothing. It's all known to God. It never bothered us until that day or that season in our life that God began bringing us to him. We begin to be bothered by that. And the shame and the guilt, we call it godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7. And God began to make that weight of our sin fall upon us and the guilt of it. And we didn't know how to get rid of it, but God put Jesus before us as his offering, the Lamb of God, who was offered for the sins of the world. And Jesus took our place, died in our place. And because of his pure and clean death, God is able to offer hope through him, the forgiveness of sins. We repented because that also is a gift. God gives repentance. There are lots and lots of people who should repent of their sins, but they can't. It is a spiritual matter. Only God can give repentance. You cannot one day decide to just straighten up and fly right. It is God who causes you to straighten up and fly right. Anybody can be sorry for all the mistakes that they have made. Anybody can have remorse and sorrow for what they did this week, last night, or 10 years ago, or many years ago. That doesn't mean because you're sorry about what you've done that you won't do it again. But when you repent, the Bible word for repent, when you change your mind and you turn around, you become a new creature. Old things, the Bible says, are passed away all things become new. And then as you stand before God, redeemed and made new, he offers you what we said last week at the times of refreshing. Now that you have repented, you have made a decision. On the inside, I will turn away from my sins. And now that in turning away from my sins, I turn to God and I begin to undo myself from all of the ways that I had learned, and I come to God, I begin to walk in newness of life because I submit myself to God. 
It's as simple as that. You can if you want to. I choose to surrender the one huge big word that guarantees spiritual success is surrender. I surrender myself to God. And he opens up, as I said, to be a whole new life. The word comes alive. I've never seen things jump off the pages like they do when you get saved. And they all offer hope. You don't have to live the way you have. It doesn't have to be same old, same old. There is newness of life. There is joy and peace and abundance. These are called the times of refreshing. And they're made real to us by the promise that the Father said last week he would give to us. The promise of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he comes to set us free. Now, back again to the word that stays with me. The word repentance and change and conversion, regeneration. If somebody asks you, how can you know if a person has really repented? How do you know that if a person has been regenerated? How can you tell? Anybody can say they are. Anybody can attend church. Anybody can learn the songs. Anybody can raise their hands. Anybody can do that if you just try hard enough to do it. You can dance. You can jump up and down if you're bold enough and clap your hands. You don't have to be saved to do that. You can learn how to do that. But how can you tell if somebody's saved? Remember this parable that Jesus told that there was a farmer that had a fig tree that wasn't making figs. And he would come out and look because, you know, that's what a fig tree is for. It's like saying, what are you for? Why did God save you? What's your reason for being in the world? And what's your reason for God saving you in the world? What's the purpose of it? Well, there's a picture. He went out and looked at the fig tree and there was no figs on it. So he told the husbandman, he said, cut the thing down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Why does it take up space? It's not doing any good. In other words, what good is a tree that's supposed to produce figs if it does not produce figs. What good is it? And the husband, remember the story? He said, well, let me dig around it and fertilize it and work on it for a year. Then after a year, and this is in Luke chapter 13, he said, then after a year, if it has not produced any fruit, then he said, cut it down. But it's the word fruit, if it bears fruit. That's how we evidence the fact that we're truly changed. We no longer do when in private, around our closest, most confiding friends. Our language is changed with them. With your parents, your life changes in front of your parents. With your closest associates at work, people you work around, your life changes in front of them. Your speech changes. Your attitude is changing. Maybe not all at once, but they can note there's a difference. Your life routine changes. You now have an interest in spiritual things that nobody wants to talk about. Nobody. But yet, it's the joy of your heart. Why? Because you've been changed. God has saved you. You've been turned around. You have repented. You have come to the Lord. Now, 2 Timothy 2, in light of that, now that you've come to the Lord, here's what it says. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Now, he just warned us about, look, you're a workman. Verse 15, leave the sin of this world and mouthies. Leave all of that alone. Get away from all of that. 
Divorce yourself from stuff like that. That can only corrupt you. The foundation of God, verse 19, standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, now he's obviously talking about dishonor. He wouldn't want to purge yourself from something good, would you? So he's talking about things that are dishonorable, things that dishonor the Lord, things that do not bear fruit evidencing your salvation. You want to get rid of it. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be. Notice he is not yet, but he certainly can be. Everybody that God saves has this potential to be. There is a program that God has. There is an activity that God will involve himself with you in so that you can be what he wants you to be. And he goes on to say, verse 21 again, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and useful for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Then he tells you to flee youthful lust and so forth, things that interfere and prevent this work from taking place. I'm not saying that every man and every woman's life is fragile. I'm just saying that when you come to the Lord, you've been such a feast for the devil for all of your life that you don't just turn around and suddenly become able to just do anything and all things any way you want to, any time you want to. It's a walk. It is a day-by-day -day walk. It's a putting your hand to the plow and holding on, no matter what comes your way. The tempter comes, testings comes, difficulty comes, distress comes, persecution comes. Everything that causes a normal, average, worldly person to give up what they were doing faces you to get you to let go of Jesus. But now there's a reason God saved you. There's a purpose for us being on this earth, not only to enjoy the Lord and to feast ourselves on spiritual things, but as he said in verse 21, to become something that is useful to God, something that does more than just sit in church seats twice a week. Somebody who does more than just memorize verses of Scripture, that's good. That's a wonderful thing to do. But there's more to life than just those kind of things. I notice he said, if a man would purge himself, he shall become. And, and the word I want to key on today is the word sanctify. Now, I've mentioned it before. We're not trying to make theologians out of everybody here, but I do believe that a Christian should be familiar with things that the Bible speaks of that have to do with your relationship with him. You should know what things like atonement means or what substitutionary atonement means. Somebody in your place died for you and so forth. You should have an understanding of what it means to have been ransomed, to be redeemed. These are just a few little terms that we need to know. Conversion, regeneration, new birth, salvation. There is so much indifference to even knowing what these things mean in Christendom today that most Christians not only have no interest in knowing what any of that means, but they don't seek to know. It doesn't mean anything to them. 
And yet this is the very heart of redemption of what Jesus did for us. He wants us to be sanctified, sanctified vessels. Now notice in 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, first is the foundation of God. Now foundation is what is laid first that you build on. A foundation is the groundwork or the basis for anything that is going to be constructed or built. If the foundation is not good, what will happen to the building? Oh, it may look good when you initially build it, but eventually because the foundation is not settled and strong and steadfast, the building will fall. That's the story of the building on the sand and building on the rock in Matthew 7. But he said the foundation that God lays stands sure and it will support everything that's built on it. Now, what is the foundation? Well, it's Jesus. The message of the Bible is Jesus. The message of the New Testament is Jesus. Jesus is the foundation. God has given us something that is immovable. It is steadfast. that cannot be overthrown. will never sift under your feet and let you down. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what we build on. The Christian life is not to build on the denominational standards and see how big we can get this and move from Jesus and who he is and what he wants in us to something out here that impresses the world or pleases us. Everything that he wants us to do is to build upon him, to learn of him. He did say, that's still in the Bible, isn't it? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. What do you learn? Well, you learn who he is. What for? So you can be like that. The high and lofty call of every Christian is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If we don't preach him and emphasize that, we can't be that. To grow up into him in all things. To be steadfast as he was. To love as he loved. To trust God as he did. He is in you, isn't he? Isn't Christ in you? If he is in you, are all his attributes there? You can't be Jesus, but you can be like him. He's the pattern son. He's the very cornerstone that the church is built upon. He's the one we should aspire to be like, not some home run hitting hero of this age, but Jesus Christ, to be able to overcome like he did, to be able to forgive like he did, to be able to have the victory fully at all times like he did, to pray and dedicate himself to God like he did. That's what he leads us to be like. The Holy Spirit says when he comes, when this time of refreshing comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, what did Jesus specifically, among two or three other things he said, what did he specifically say the Holy Spirit would do? He shall take the things of mine, things that concern me, and he'll show it to you. Because he wants your life to be all about him. He must increase. Well, you must decrease. It's not about us. It's not about the system. It's about Jesus. A revelation of Jesus Christ to your heart is a great experience that all Christians need continually. A continuous revealing of who he is and what he is and the inspiration that comes with that revelation that you can be like this. You can be like him. 
You can't be him, but you can be like him. Again, he's the one we aspire to be like. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what is set before us that he wants us to be like. That's what makes us different. That's what changes people's lives. We may want to get saved because we want a better job, better recognition, a good resume. We go to church for all those kind of reasons. That's not why you get saved. You get saved because you're a sinner. You hate your sin. When Jesus saves you, he turns you to him, and he said, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to be. This is how I want you to live. This is what I want you to be like. That's a choice we have to make whether we want to do that or not. If we make the right choices, praise God. Notice another thing he said in this little section here about having a seal. In verse 19, the foundation of God standeth sure having this seal. Now, what's a seal? That's one of those words you can make a lot of things out of, whether it's an animal, a, a Navy man, or something else. But seal here has to do with a proof of ownership. I'm sure all of you know that in the old days before they had stamps and before you had envelopes you could lick, you would fold your letter over if, to say, somebody in authority was sending mail and didn't want anybody to read it, and then they would take candle tallow and they would pour on that letter. And they usually had a ring or a stamp or something. They would put their ring in that tallow, that candle tallow, while it was still hot and hold it there for a minute and then bring it up. And when they do, there was an impression of this ring or this signet that showed authority. If the king, for example, sent somebody something and, and he would do that, he put his ring on there, his signet, and everybody know this is the king's letter. It shows ownership, in other words. This is from me. Now, I don't want to get into the subject of sealing because it's a really big subject. The Bible speaks of us in Ephesians 1.13 of being when we believe we were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And it says similar things in Ephesians 4.30. But to be sealed is for God to put his approval and his stamp on your life. It's like testifying to the world, these are mine. Now, they may not look like it yet. When God drew you out of some miry clay and some dirty life you've been living and he saved you, puts his spirit in you, his seal is on you. Now, you may not know it. We may not know it, but we will know it. Because not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. Not everybody that sings, raises their hands, dances, and says, Lord, Lord. Not all of those are his. You know that. You know that. Wheat and tares growing together look the same. It's hard to tell the difference at a certain stage. You don't know which one is which. They do the same thing, sing the same. They're all alike. They're very religious because you can't tell who's more and who's not. But as they grow, God's work in people's lives are going to begin to show because of the way they're going to live and the things they're going to say. It is God who put his seal of approval on you and says to the world and to you, these are mine. They will never say in their lifetime, as they begin to walk with God, those whom God has sealed, to never hear God say, I never knew you. There's always this something, this impression you have in your heart 
that you belong to God. And he singles you out whenever you do say something wrong or you go places you shouldn't go or do things you shouldn't do. Whenever you sin, there's this disturbance that you have on the inside of you that other people don't have that. They go to church all the time, but you do because you're his. You don't want to do that anymore. You get bothered by it. You repent of it. You eventually break away from the sources that lead you into these kind of sinful traits because you're his. If you can keep doing the old life, if you've never changed, you're not his. Now, maybe today he'll make you his. I don't know. That's his business. I don't make it a point to offer salvation to whoever wants to come and receive it. It's not mine to offer you, quite frankly. It's his. If he wants to save people, he will save them. I will tell you what he said and help you how to get saved. But the saving part, God does. Amen. He's the only one that can. But that's the way it works. Now, there's two features of God's people here. Go back in verse 19. One of them is that God's people depart from iniquity. Do you see that? The foundation of God stands here having this seal. This is how you know. No, this is how that approval stamp shows up. Let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, iniquity usually is a word having to do with self-rule. Actually, this word here for iniquity is not exactly that. It has to do with injustice or being unjust. That is, what is not comfortable with justice, what ought not to be, something which is wrong, that's what is meant here by iniquity. I shouldn't do that. That's not right. I shouldn't wear that. Let me get onto that again. I shouldn't wear that. I shouldn't try to look like this or that. Who am I trying to please? I don't have to go out and try to make the world know I'm tough or spiritual. You just have to live your life. It is God who makes you what you need to be, where you need to be. Be quiet, peaceful. Just like a lot of young men who want to preach so badly are forcing their way into the ministry. It doesn't work. I have known at least personally two men in my life who forced their way in the ministry. Tried to. They could preach as good as I could. They knew the Bible as well as I did, if that means anything. They could carry on a conversation as spiritual as well as anybody. But what they were trying to do, God hadn't called them to do, and it looked like it worked, but it didn't work. People quit coming. thing finally closed down. I know that happened two or three times with one person. I mean, he had all the personality you'd want, but he did. when he got in the pulpit and began to do what he does, it worked for a couple of weeks, maybe a month, and then it just began to decline. Think, why? Because that's not what he was called to do. Then they get depressed. They get discouraged. They get a little bit angry at God because they watch other people preach, and they say, well, I know as much as he does. Well, I can say that better than he said that, and yet it doesn't work for them. They get ahead of God. They want to do something because they think this is what God wants me to do without just let God bring you where he wants to bring you. Just seek, um, somebody help me with that. Seek first and his righteousness, his right ways, the opposite of this word iniquity, seek his kingdom and what is right, be willing to do it, and all these other things will be added to you. 
be added to you. You don't have to try to outquote other people, impress other people. Just seek first the kingdom and be still and be quiet, and God will bring you in. Now, notice another thing he said here, another feature of God's people in verse 20. is where I want to get to today, finally, is purging. Purging. Now, what is purging? Well, purging simply means cleansing. Cleanse from what? I had a shower this morning. He's not talking about natural things here, is he? When the Lord forgave us, didn't he forgive us? Jesus cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. He forgave me of 28 years of sin and left none of them out, didn't he? Well, then what do I need to be cleansed of then? I mean, what is there to cleanse if I've been forgiven? Have you been forgiven? Well, then there's nothing to be cleansed in your life. But on the other hand, a lot of people that have been forgiven still find themselves doing what they used to do. Why would they do that if you've been forgiven? If all these old things have passed away, then why do you still wrestle with the same stuff? It all has to do with your training. See, in the old life, you were trained to sin. You were by nature the child of rebellion, disobedience, Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3. We were by nature. We were naturally. We didn't have to try to sin. We didn't have to try to think bad, have bad attitudes. We didn't have to try to do any of that. We did that so natural that we didn't have to think about it. You didn't say, now, I need to curse right here. I need to say a bad word. Let me see. How do you pronounce these bad words? With nothing to it. It was as natural as breathing. We were like that. Now, one day God saved us and forgave us. He forgave us of all the ugly, nasty, ornery things, depending on you and what you did. He forgave you all of that stuff. Well, then what does it mean when it says Jesus is a refiner or that we are to purge ourselves? or that Christ is going to cleanse his church, of what? Have we been forgiven or not? What are we cleansed of? Well, let me tell you this. When I got saved, you know this. When I was born again, I got a new spirit. Ezekiel spoke about a new heart, a new spirit. I became alive to Christ. I had been dead in trespasses and sins for 28 years. But then I became alive unto God. The biggest problem I'm now facing is the training of my mind. I didn't get a new brain. There's nobody in this room when you were born again got a new brain. You got another mind, the mind of Christ. You got two minds now. And only one of them is to reign. The big opposition I have is my natural mind, which was trained to say those bad words and have those bad attitudes and think those bad thoughts. All the residue of that old life is still there. I've been forgiven. Everything I ever did, I've been forgiven of, but it's like I got dirty dishes. This has got to be cleansed. Or did Paul mean what he said when he said we have to be transformed? How? By the renewing of your mind. Why does my mind have to be renewed? Didn't God save me? You know what? He saved you. He didn't change your mind. You've got to do that. It's a choice you're going to have to make the rest of your life. 
even when your natural mind here, you hear God say something and you go, well, I, that doesn't make sense. Now, the spirit on the inside of you, you know it's from God. You read it. You know there's something stirring in here, and it is in opposition to what your natural mind is saying. Well, I don't know about that. Well, why? that's crazy. Why would I do that? I'd lose my job. Well, I can't do that. Well, she would leave me if I started doing this. Oh, he would leave. Oh, he would never come. Where do you think the war in your life is? It's between your spirit and your mind. I'm not into metaphysics and all that about mind over matter and all that. I'm talking about this, that when God speaks a word to your heart, that's a word of direction. That's his word. There must be a commanding of your will. You still have a will? In spite of how you feel or what you think, you've got to be willing to say, yes, Lord. And it's my belief that the more you yield and surrender yourself to God in his way, the more the new comes and the old goes. He increases, you decrease. And the more you do this, the more this biblical term of purging or cleansing takes place. I don't even know the depths of my sin. I know how I felt about it. I know the emotion I had when I got saved, but I wasn't aware of the deepness and the control that it had on me until I began to study the Bible. I began to learn about warfare. You've heard about warfare. And then the verse in the Bible that says, the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal. What's our warfare? I've been saved. How could I have warfare if I'm saved? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty through God to what? Pulling down what? Strongholds. Wait a minute. Have I been forgiven? Well, then what is a stronghold? It means that all your life you were controlled by something. Lying. There are some of you sitting in this room that even your parents have said, well, I can't tell when he or she, or I can't tell when they're telling the truth or when they're lying. I've caught them in lies several times. You were naturally like that. God, well, he saved you. He forgave you for all those lies. But do you realize that that thing that had a stronghold in your life doesn't just leave because you said, I'm saved? If we don't do some purging in our life and all this stuff the world talks about, they identify us by how we live. If we don't live a sanctified or a saved life, they make all these jokes about all them Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in a warfare this morning. There's a real war going on in my life. And you may not know it yet, but there's one going on in your life too. There are things in me that don't want to let go of this world. I'm some degree, maybe more than others. The idea that you would have to give up certain things in your life would just devastate you. Can't do it. What if the voice boomed out of heaven and say, no more sports. Don't listen to it. Don't watch it. No more for the rest of your life. Oh, we'd crawl, cry, whine, and it'd be smoking. Oh, maybe not. I haven't heard God say that either, but what if he did? What if he did? Oh, well, there would be moaning. Why? Is it a stronghold? Is it a grip on our lives that we learn to tolerate, but 
boy, it just holds us spellbound. It controls us. Well, if so, then that's part of our warfare, that because this thing gets between us and God. We can't have a men's meeting because there's a ball game on. And how do you know that's the problem? Because of the talk. Well, I don't know what I thought about it. It's because of the world. It's the world. That's what it does to us. We've been in it so long, nobody's ever showed us that this has been a stronghold, a grip on your life. It's whatever it is. It has to be purged. It has to be dealt with. Listen, if you want to grow and be built on the foundation that God and grow up to him from glory to glory to glory to glory and to keep on growing and become the salt and the light of this world and to magnify God and to be identified with God and God to identify with you, you have to cleanse yourself. He shines his light in your life and says, get this stuff out of your life. Then you've got to be willing, as that first message was, you've got to make good choices. I have dealt with too many Christians in my long time here, almost a third of a century. That's too long for anybody. But I've dealt with a lot of people, church discipline, private admonitions that nobody knows about. That's the best way. Having to deal with people who are professing Christians, been in church for years, and then just with their eyes open, fall back into sin because that particular sin was never dealt with. It has a strong hold. Oh, I'm all right. I've been forgiven. God's in charge of me now. But that thing still lives in there waiting for an opportunity because the devil, like a roaring lion, he goes about looking for those who have that weakness so he can spring a trap. Had to put them out. And I think, how in the world can you sit here and say, amen, brother, or amen, and then do what they did? How do you do that? Is there no fear of God or is there no shame? Can a man be in church or a woman be in church and hear all the things that are said and nod their head in approval, know every book in the Bible, can find it quicker than anybody, and then go out and violate everything they hear? Is that possible? Then something has got not only a grip but a strong hold in somebody's life or somebody has never been converted. They've never been changed. Never been changed. Listen to what the Bible says about being purged here. James said, James 1.27, Receive with meekness. This is how you change. Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 3 to his disciples, he said, Now you are clean purged through the word that I have spoken to you. Psalm 119 and verse 9 says this, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Answer, by taking heed to the word. There will be a war. There will be a clash of two worlds in your life. You will be confronted with things you've done all your life. Your family did these things. This is in your blood. It's a part of you. And one day God says, in your case, that's too much. You need to get rid of that. Didn't say it to the guy beside, said it to you. Could he do that? What if he said, Caleb, you got so much UK in you that when you cut your finger the day it was blood was blue. That's too much. You're too much into it. 
planning your life and your activities and schedules and all because you're just overwhelmed and just so, in, that's too much. To one person, he says, not at all. To another, he says, back off. And he'll give you things to, that get in the way to see if you've really backed off. Men's meeting or something. Imagine that. Peter wrote this about the word and cleansing. He said, seeing then that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Y'all realize today that God has given us one thing Jesus said was necessary, one thing, and it's like soap. Did you know that the living word Jesus is like the fuller soap that cleanses? That his word is designed not only to bless you and edify you and build you up and give you an inheritance, but his word is also like soap. But it's not soap unless it's applied. How many of you know this? I could get in my little shower this morning and have the good hot water and, and even shampoo and just have a big time. <laughs> How many of you know if there's no soap in there, that I got wet but I didn't get clean? I mean, I wouldn't think I did. So if you want to get in the shower and get clean, what do you have to have? Soap. If you want to get your life right with the Lord so that he can use you and you can be set apart for his use and useful to him, what do you have to have? you got to have the word because the word is the thing that he reveals to you and it becomes like soap because that's what you got to deal with. If you don't love the word, if you don't seek it, if you don't want to know about it, you're in trouble. You'd be surprised how many people... Just enjoy the word. There may be not a lot, but enjoy the word. They just like to memorize things. You know, just the Ten Commandments. Well, that's not much. Well, how many of you know what the Ten Commandments are? Or how many books are in the Bible? How many Old Testament? How many New Testament? What's the longest book in the Bible? What's the shortest book in the Bible? What's the longest verse in the Bible? What's the shortest verse in the Bible? I don't know. Well, it's not necessary to be saved to know that. It's just that some people like to be familiar and acquaint themselves with the Word. Learn the 12 tribes of Israel. That's pretty interesting. It is. It's just memorizing things. Memorize the books of the Bible every now and then. Start at the back. Start from Malachi and go to Genesis and see if you can do it. And then start in the middle. Go with Proverbs and go each way until you get to the end. See if you can do it. Well, that doesn't mean you're spiritual, does it? You can do that without being saved. It's just something that you like in relating to the Word. And then when you read the Word, and I would like to think that people do it just about every day, read something, that your prayer is that, that you know, God, is, as I look at this very special book, this very unique and holy Word, the only book that God ever gave to a man to read, the only book in the world that you can be blessed by reading it. I pray that you will open my eyes to behold wondrous things from thy law. And he begins to show you things. You're reading the Old Testament, but you can see New Testament things about it. Then you begin to realize here's something I need to deal with. That This is a word of cleansing. It's how you purge yourself. If you're not here, if you don't seek after God, you can't purge yourself. I don't know what people do about this purging and cleansing who never open their Bible. The church doesn't preach it. 
or they just tell stories. I don't know what they do. I don't know. Maybe it's not required. Maybe it's no big deal. But go back to where I want to go this morning. If a man does purge himself from these things in verse 21, he shall be a vessel unto honor. And what's that next word? Sanctified. He shall be a vessel unto honor. Sanctified. Now, I've spoken and mentioned sanctification many years here. And again, this morning, I want to say a couple more things about it. One is this. The word sanctify and the word holy come from the same root word. To speak of being sanctified is to speak of being holy. And to speak of being holy is to speak of being sanctified. How is it that Jesus will make his church holy? Remember in Ephesians 5 and verse 26, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Can I say this as a little sidetrack? I get sidetracked a lot. Jesus didn't give himself for everybody in this world. Jesus said, I laid down my life for whom? The sheep. He said, I lay down my life for my sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. My sheep. This is who he came to lay his life down for. And he says here that Christ gave himself for the church. Are you glad you're in it? I hope you are. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, this is what he's doing, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, what we've been talking about, that he might in the end present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. What are spots and wrinkles and any such thing? They're strongholds. The things that remain in your life that are active, they're like a volcano that's not dead but still boiling underground. Things that have to be dealt with. Everybody in this room has to be dealt with. Something in your life needs to be dealt with. It is God who by his spirit gives revelation of it so you can deal with it. But this is how he's going to cleanse his church. We come together. We sing and worship and everything else, but the primary feature of it is to hearing the word because the word like soap is what he's going to use to cleanse his church. But he will sanctify and cleanse his church, verse 26, with the washing of water by the word so that he can present to himself in the end as the head of the church and as the cornerstone. A glorious church, a church full of glory, a church that has no spots, no wrinkles, no pollutions of this world. No pollutions. But it's clean. It is distinctly different from everything else in the world. And these are specially his people. These are the ones he gave himself for. These are the ones that he is sanctifying. Because you see, before there is a washing of water by the word or a cleansing, there comes this sanctifying first. In other words, before we become what we have to be, he must first sanctify us. Now, there's two aspects of sanctification. I don't want to get technical again. I just want to see, make you understand this. 
two aspects of sanctification. One is positional sanctification, and one is experimental sanctification. Positional sanctification is what God did when he chose me. He picked me up out of the miry clay. He chose me. I didn't choose him, but he picked me up out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, planted me in his courts. In other words, God was willing to identify with me. I am not worthy to be identified with him. My sins had separated between me and God. Jesus made it possible now for this to happen, that a man can be reconciled back to God. And while a man does not deserve to be saved, a loving, gracious God sends his mercy and his grace, lifts you up out of the miry clay, and brings you to himself, not because you did anything or were capable of doing anything, but because he wanted to. It's all grace. No man can save himself. Only God can save you. That is, bring you to himself and breathe new life into you. Now, he does that. Now, he does this so that you can walk the way he wants you to walk. But sanctification, the word sanct, S-A-N-C-T, is our word for saint, holy ones. A saint is a holy one. When God brought you out of darkness, he holified you, made you holy. You said, I'm a stronghold. All I'm not. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about you're holy because you have done everything holy. You're holy because God brought you to himself. He put his arm around you and he brought you out of the world to himself. He made you his and that makes you holy. Just like the offerings that were brought into the courtyard for man's sins. Anything that a man brought in his behalf before God was considered holy. You know, there's just a piece of meat, a dead animal, but it was holy because of what it represented. Well, we're not so holy in our own estimation or in anybody else's estimation, but if God has brought you to him, he considers you his son, therefore you are holy. He's going to change this. We've already been talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. He says, but such were some of you, but you are washed. You were like these people he described in 1 Corinthians 6, but he said, you have been washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're sanctified. That is, you are set apart to be holy. Sanctification means the process of making. So see, positionally, you are sanctified. When God saves you, he sanctifies you. He separated you. When he grabbed Thomas here, he grabbed him out of the world, and he separated him from the world unto God. He didn't save everybody else around him necessarily, but he saved him, brought him out, and said, you're mine. Now, he has set him apart for his own good, for his own glory. Is that right? It is God who has a use for him, and God is going to use him. I look at my own life. Why didn't God pick my brother instead of me? Why didn't God pick some of the more intelligent people I ran around with in my growing up years? Why, of all people, the least of all of them, why did he pick me? I mean, the worst of the bunch and the, the least of the bunch. Why me? I don't know either. 
I just know that God picked what he wanted. He had a plan for it. Why didn't you get somebody else, Lord? You know, I got a lot of hang-ups. I stutter. Very insecure about a lot of things. Why me? Oh, why me indeed? See, I look out there this morning, I say, why you? <laughs> why? Why couldn't you do better than that? No, not necessarily. God has chosen the foolish and the base, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He chose the foolish and the base and the despised and the things the world would reject. That's what he picked to serve him. This is whom God picks. And when he picked you, here's the point. When he picked you, he sanctifies you. He set you apart from the world to be his. Now, you may not know what that means yet. You may not be well informed about that or where this is leading or where this is going. All you know is you felt bad about your sins and you went to church and asked God to save you. Well, God set you apart. Now you're his. And you're going to learn what he wants you to do because you're going to live sanctified. Listen to this verse. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, entirely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctify, set apart, make holy, considered holy, set apart as holy to live holy. You are sanctified because you belong to God. See, he that sanctifieth and he that is sanctified are all of one, Hebrews 2 tells us. So it is God who does the sanctifying. Now, that's positional sanctification. By association with God, he did it. You are considered set apart. Secondly is experimental sanctification. That's living the life. Now, this is a little tougher. Remember the verse in 1 Peter 3, 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Turn back to Ezekiel 36, 23. Now, while you're looking at that verse in Ezekiel, the apostle Peter wrote this. He said, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And what does that mean? Well, that means because he has chosen you and you are his, sanctify the Lord, separate everything else from him and let him be in your heart the most fundamentally important thing in your whole life and existence. And learn about him so that if any man asks you a reason of the hope that is within, you'll be able to tell him. Because again, you become associated with his word, you read his word, you memorize his word, you think about his word, you do word things, you just involve yourself in the word. Now, in our verse in Ezekiel, in verse 23, God says, but when I am sanctified in you, Jesus said, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And he said here, when I am sanctified in you. What does that mean? When you begin to set aside everything that leads you away from God, everything that does you wrong, everything that makes you grieve about what you did, and you begin to set God in your life as the reason for your sanctification, for the reason you're going to do right and make good choices. I look unto you, Lord. I surrender myself, my life to the Lord. I want to learn about you. I want to walk with you. I want to know you. 
you are holy. I want to be holy. I want to live a holy life. I don't want to try to outlive anybody else. I don't want a competitive religious spirit. What a church botherer that is. I'm not in competition. I just want to be all that you have chosen me to be. To do this, I have to come to you. There must be a surrender here unto you. And I must put you so much in first place and the holiest place of my life so that anything that is in harmony with you, I dismiss it. Is that possible? Is it possible? Is it possible that concerning the weapons of your warfare, that they are to pull down strongholds? What does the rest of that verse say? Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God who is supreme. If he is. If they speak not according to this, it's darkness. They may speak well. They may get a lot of this right, but they leave a lot of it out or twist the rest of it. It's darkness. Let me tell you something. While this doesn't sound very politically right or politically correct, all the Christian churches out here can't be right. When we all disagree about a number of things, we can't all be right. Somebody's wrong. Now, if we're willing to just live with the wrong, then you might as well set Jesus off center. There's got to be a desire in your heart to know it right. I want to know it right. I want to honor God with righteousness. Well, wait a minute now. Seek first the kingdom of God and what else? His right ways. Well, then if I'm going to seek his kingdom and his right ways, I've got to get his right ways set before me. In other words, I must sanctify. I must make holy, authoritative, and absolutely in control of my life. God and his word. I must be ready always to give an answer to every man because he's going to make me a living testimony in this world, an ambassador of heaven to this world, a light that shines. God help me if I don't. God help me if I'm supposed to be salt and I'm not even good for the dunghill, not even thrown in a toilet. It's no good. It doesn't work. It's like a fig tree. Cut it down. Christian life is pretty demanding, folks. And you got to put God in his place, and you got to hold him there. He's everything that you need. Jesus said, if a man will purge himself from everything that the revelation of God begins to show him is dishonorable and fruitless in your life, if you begin to purge himself from these things, you will be sanctified. You will be set apart. If you let remain in your life things that you continually grieve over, I think a whole bunch of you know what I'm talking about. If you keep letting junk in your life keep making you grieve over it, one day you'll get hardened to it. While the voice of God speaks clearly to us, we need to turn away from sin. Turn your back on all the things that used to be strongholds in your life. Give it up. It's an act of your will. You can do this. You've got to walk away from it. You've got to walk away from it. There are things in our lives we may not know fully about it now, but things in our lives we're going to have to walk away from. Big decisions we're going to have to make. Things that are going to confront us and change our lives. 
For example, what did Paul mean when he said in Romans 12 and verse 1 that we are to present our bodies as a what? What's that? It means there's a surrender. That word keeps popping up. I wonder why. There's this continuous surrender to these all things new. Because new things do not become your things unless you surrender to these new things. God shows you. I surrender a whole lot more than most people do. Praise God for me. I surrender all to Jesus. I surrender. I surrender all. What a simple song. What a profound song. How many can sing it? How many can sing it? Surrender. I want to offer my body, my being, my person, who I am, a living sacrifice. I don't want nothing to be held back from you that you must judge. I want to get rid of all of it. I want the great refiner to cleanse me and purge me. I want to hear the Lord say at the end, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But there's got to be this offering on the altar. Or Romans 6.13 says, But yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as righteousness unto God. That's what we do. I don't want to just say that and go on like we all do, but I want to emphasize it again. That's why it takes me so long to preach a sermon. Just want to make sure you know what we're talking about. Because it's easy to say the right words and nobody cares if they understand it as long as you say it. But if you understand it, then you squirm. Or, I mean, then you learn what God wants you to do. Yield yourself as servants unto God, as somebody who's alive from the dead. Surrender. So that what he wants is what you begin to do. Would you turn to John 17 as we commence closing here? John chapter 17. You are sanctified. You are to live sanctified. You are made holy by association with God. You are to live holy as the effect of that relationship with God. God has so affected you that what you see is no longer I, but... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Galatians 2 said, I have been... Somebody help me. About these strongholds and things that we're dealing with, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet. Not I, but Christ lives in me. Isn't that what we're after? That's what we're after. Christ living in me. I must decrease. He must increase. I must yield. He must grow. Growing up into him, it says, not in yourself, but in him, becoming like him. All points to one thing. When God saved you and brought you to him and brought you out of darkness, you are now willing not only to surrender to him, but to surrender to his way and to do what he says. And the more you do what he says, the less of you there is, the more of him there is. This is what gets you persecuted. This is why people feel sorry for you. The poor soul could have had so much fun in life, but they got hung up in religion. Now the poor things have to go to heaven when they die. John 17, verse 17. 
in his last high priestly prayer in the garden, while he's praying in the garden for his church, that they may be one even as we are one, I have left them in the world, didn't take them out of the world. What does he say in verse 17? What did he pray? Sanctify them how? Let me ask you all a question. If we're truly different people than we used to be, if we truly do act differently than we used to act and talk differently than we used to talk, why? Did God make us do that? Or did God give us his truth? Did he give us his truth? How did truth change us? Faith, that's right. You believed it. You were convicted, weren't you? We were convicted. We heard the word. We all came here for that reason. There's not a little handful of you that lived here or else you're born. Well, a bunch of them were born here because we've been here a while. A half of you are born here now. But everybody over that age... We all came here from somewhere else. Why? Because we were lonely. No, we came here because of the word. And the scoffers where you came from said, why would you go a thousand miles or a hundred miles? Why would you go? There are churches everywhere on the corner. It's true, and there are. You can dial a brand. You can just, what kind you want? Arminian church, you want a Calvinist church? They got the Pentecostals, they got the Reformed church. Which kind you want? You want the quiet ones? We got two of them. We got the Catholics and the Episcopalians. So you get, what else you want? You want a loud one? We got a Pentecostal. Hey, so what do you want? But somewhere in your life, in your past, recently or a few years ago, God stuck a word in your heart. You'd never heard it like that before. Somewhere, not while you were here maybe, but somewhere, that word came in there and it began to show you the difference between what you need and what you've been here. And you begin to long for that word. And then you realize that maybe, I did, I did, where I was, it wasn't there. I couldn't hear it. The preacher who was a hireling and was paid to preach, he couldn't say things he ought to be saying to us. He either didn't know them or he was afraid to say them. Because there were people there who would gnash their teeth at truth and they would fire the man. So they limit him as to how far he can go and what he can say. And I'm suffering for it. And there was this urging from the Lord to get out of here. So I went up and saddled my horse and got to riding off in the wilderness. My horse died in Shelbyville. So this is where I wound up. My horse just fell. <laughs> I came to Shelbyville in 1977 to get away from Charlestown, Indiana. Church had split and everybody wanted me to start a church. No way. I came to Shelbyville, a little Bible study got started. Let's start a church. No way. I left Shelbyville and went to the Sahara Desert. <laughs> I went to another place, five years. And Shelbyville never looked as good in all my life as it did. And I got back. It's the grandest place I've ever been. In our magnificent surroundings, our paved lot, <laughs> everything that makes the world think those poor souls. I wouldn't trade places with any of them. I came here for one reason. Now, I came here, I'm the talker, but I can only tell you this, that a lot of times I say things that convicts me. 
How can that be? Well, I say a lot of things I never thought of. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> a lot of things just come up that I never thought of. And then I have to go back there and sit in the back and take some more notes and think, boy, you're going to kill yourself if you keep talking. <laughs> 30 minutes would be enough for anybody. You go for an hour, that's 30 minutes. You're going to cut your head off in there, boy. That's why I came. Sanctify them through thy word. Separate my people from all that's vile and unclean. Give them thy word and make it clear to these people. Open their eyes that they can see it. And then give these people the courage to make that choice. Because not all of them are. But you can. And God didn't send you here to die. He didn't send you here to backslide. If I've said it once, I've said it too much. I've said to people, you could have done what you're doing now where you came from. You don't have to come here set under this ministry to die. All the expense of traveling to get here to sit here and backslide as bad as you can. You could have stayed where you were and done that. But for everyone that does that, there's at least 10 or 15, maybe 20 that are getting it and are going to keep it and they're going to hold on to it and God's going to bless them. Well, I'm willing to live set apart. Are you? I'm willing to live just set apart. You see, this that I'm talking about is the converted life. This is the life of conversion. This is how converted people live. For whom God foreknow, them he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That choice that God makes is offered to you. Are you willing to make the right choice and say, I will, I surrender? Are you willing? Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will bless and keep us from everything that you have to judge in us. That as you taught us to pray, that you would deliver us from evil. I pray that all these people, Lord, if they are not yet, that they will be in the quietness and the solitude of some place that you bring them or in a crowd, that you'll save everybody. Let it be true, Lord, that you didn't bring any of us here to perish. You didn't bring us here to give up and quit, to be worldly, to be judged. Give us holy hearts, holy minds, in Jesus' name. Lord, as we approach the communion table now, I pray that our focus will be upon the one whom this book is all about, about Jesus, who he is and what he did, why he did it and who he did it for. And may we have thankful and grateful hearts this morning as we partake of the bread and the cup, and I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Only in God is my soul at rest. In Him comes my salvation. He only is my rock, my strength, and my salvation.
salvation my stronghold my savior I shall not be afraid at all my stronghold my savior I shall not be